Christians that say Jesus is Lord. And I want to talk to you about the Lordship of Christ, what that means, and what it means for you and me. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to read verses 15 and 16 to you. And then we're going to go to Revelation and read one verse. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Let's, let's take our reading here from at verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul giving the final charge, you might say, to Timothy in this letter. Timothy's a young preacher, uh, probably in his uh, late 30s or mid-40s, pastoring in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is just very close to his own death. And he's an old man writing back to the young preacher. And here's what he says in verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now turn to Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. That's the last book of the New Testament. And we'll see this this term used again. Revelation 17, 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. We trust the Lord to add his blessing to the reading of his word. For the last, uh, I guess this might be the fourth Sunday, I've tried to answer this question, who is Jesus? And you know, we're, we're, we're coming down to Easter, and that's the resurrection Sunday. It's, it's, a, big, it's a big day. It's a big day around the world. This is, this is, you're going to see Walmart's going to have all kinds. They the, they've already got the Easter candy out there. The little baskets, the egg dyeing kits, everything. The whole world is going to be responding to this Easter event. If you have a calendar, more than likely on Friday before Easter, I think that's April the 2nd this year, you'll see it says Good Friday. They've put on the calendar. They're making note of somebody significant died on this day. The Lordship of Christ is, is seen in many places. And I decided to take these uh, seven Sundays as we come down to Easter and talk about who Jesus is, and that's what we've been doing. And today I want to talk to you about Jesus being Lord. And I want you to know today the place that Jesus holds in the world and universe. He is the Lord. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And I want you to know that even if you do not believe it. What I'm going to tell you is true. And if you don't believe it, that's your, it's your choice. But I want you to know what you can expect to see in the future. If you live long enough physically, and your soul is going to live forever, you eventually in the future are going to know Jesus is Lord, one way or another. The whole world, 
the whole universe, the whole entirety of human existence. All all the people who've ever lived are going to know that Jesus is Lord. And I want Christians to know that they are under the lordship and rule of Christ and that it is he who is our master and we are his servants. But let's begin with <laughs> let's begin with what does the word lord mean? What does the word lord mean? The word lord appears in scripture thousands of times. In the Old Testament alone, it appears almost 7,000 times, lord Now, it doesn't always represent the the words that are translated as Lord are not always the same. There's quite a bit of variety. But the word Lord chosen by the translators simply refers to a person who is worthy of our deference, of our submission, and our loyalty. Lord. You see, kings are called lords. Magistrates are called lords. To be a lord is something very, very significant. And you can't miss the prominence of this word as you read the scripture. And it basically every time refers to a person who is to be obeyed. Who is to be obeyed. The Lord. This is how God reveals himself to the children of Israel. He comes to them and says, I am the Lord, the one you should listen to. And then he says, I am the Lord who has done this and that for you. He is the Lord. He holds the position of authority and he has the power that supports his authority. The word means someone who is to be obeyed. Historically, the word Lord has been used to refer to kings, magistrates, and that kind of thing. This is is something worth noting in the New Testament. The Bible says that Sarah called Abraham Lord, her husband, holding him in a special place in her life. In the English Bible, it's very clear. This word, it's used to describe the heads of nations, the heads of families. It's even used to describe God himself. He's the Lord. That's in the Old Testament. That's just the Old Testament. Nearly 7,000 usages of it in the Old Testament. And then you come to the New Testament, and you see the word Lord used again. And in the Greek New Testament, it comes from a Greek word, and the word is kurios. And it's almost always connected to another Greek word called doulos, kurios and doulos. Kurios means master, and doulos means slave or servant. This word appears in the New Testament. In the Roman Empire, to show you how this word was used, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was referred to as the Lord of the empire, the master of the empire. Everyone referred to him in this way. And often in official monuments and official documents, to the word Lord was added another word that we're all familiar with, was added the word Savior. Caesar was Lord and Savior of the Roman empire. Now that's an interesting thing to think about. The success, the security of Rome, they say, rested in the deified human Caesar. He is the Lord and Savior. And a a part of Roman citizenship, annually in different cities, there was a requirement that the Roman citizens would have to confess that Caesar was Lord and Savior in a sacrificial offering system. It was just a small pinch of, of, uh, 
of uh, incense they would offer to say he was Lord and Savior. This got Christians into quite a bit of trouble later on in life as time went on because Christians, they began to refuse to say that anybody was Lord and Savior except guess who? Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Christians in the first century, they were exposed to this Roman use of the word. They knew what it meant when somebody said they were Lord. And as you see the Apostle Paul writing to the churches, calling Jesus Lord in, the, in, in Romans and in the Acts and even in the Gospels. Jesus is the Lord, Lord and Savior. Jesus is the one who takes away sin. Jesus became to the Christians Lord and Savior. He says, I am the master, I am the shepherd, I am the boss, I am the king, and you are my servants. And what has he done for his servants? He saved their souls. An early teaching of Paul in his letters was, and it's a teaching also of Jesus too, an early teaching of Paul and Jesus was that Christians were not merely citizens on earth. In Philippians chapter 3, it's not clear in the authorized version because it uses the word conversation instead of citizenship, but the marginal reading is citizenship. The, tr- the Greek word polyumio is translated in the authorized version as conversation. In the margin and other translations, it's translated as citizenship. Now, you might say, there's a big difference between conversation and citizenship. You're right. You're right. It's kind of a debated translation. But the teaching of Paul and that of Christ is that we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We sing that song sometimes, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We're strangers here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what Paul and Jesus both are telling people is that Jesus is the savior of the soul and he is the king of the Christian. He is the king of the Christian. And the result of this teaching of Jesus and Paul was that Christians for several centuries were persecuted because they would not confess that Caesar was their Lord and Savior, but that only Christ was, that only Jesus was their Lord, that only Jesus had the ownership of their soul. That doesn't mean they didn't submit to earthly authorities. They did. But they said, We'll submit to earthly authorities as long as those authorities are in agreement with the teachings of Jesus. And when the government or the society we live in goes contrary to Jesus' law, we honor God first. We honor the law of Christ first. So when we read the New Testament, we see the word Lord connecting to Jesus, meaning He is the Lord, He is the Master of the Christians. In 2 Peter 3.18, It says that we know Him to be our Savior and our Lord. Just to make it plain about what lordship is, Jesus is the boss of the Christian, and we who are Christians are supposed to do what He commands. To do what He commands. He's the boss. When 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 we We do not read very far into the New Testament. Before we see Jesus exercising his lordship by telling his disciples to do his will. One interesting episode, in my opinion, is when he comes into a city that he's decided to take the, to have the Passover in. And he says, uh, go, go tell this guy that the Lord, he's got a room ready. Go, go tell him that I'm coming to use the room. And they do. And then 
uh, on, in the week before the Passover, in the Passion Week, uh, he tells the disciples, go into the city and you'll see a donkey with its colt tied up by a, a hitching post. Go down there and take it. And if anybody asks you a question about it, just tell them, the Lord needs it. So they go into the city and they start unhitching this guy's donkey and taking, taking the baby, the baby <laughs> donkey with them. And the guy says, what are you doing? Taking my donkey. Right? And they said, the Lord needs it. And he says, okay. The master needs We see Jesus exercising lordship, telling his disciples, do this and do that. Go here and go there. He even tells them to do things that do not seem logical. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70? He said, I want you guys to go out and preach, and I don't want you to take any kind of provisions. Don't take an extra coat. Don't take any money. Just go and do what I say. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? It, Common sense would say, prepare. But they said, he said, go, and they had to go in obedience and had to go in faith, depending upon their needs to be met. So Jesus exercises lordship. You see it in the New Testament again and again. And there's an interesting uh, reading in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And it's not just the 12. He's talking to a lot of people here. And here's what Jesus says. If you wonder how Jesus meant to use the word referring to himself. In Luke 6, 46, it says this. Jesus says to them, Why... Call you me, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, Boss, Boss, but you don't do the things that I say. Why do you call me Master, but you don't obey me? This sounds to me like Malachi in the Old Testament, where the Lord says to the Israelites, If I am your Lord, if I am your King, if I am your Father, where is my honor? Where is my obedience? If you're calling me something, but not showing it with your life, what's the deal with that? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you a Christian this morning? And if you are a Christian, and if you say you are a Christian, I ask you the question of Christ. Why do you not obey the Master? The Lord's will is clear. And because he's the master, he doesn't seem to be overly concerned with getting our opinion about what he says. (laughs) He just says, do what I say. If you're a Christian, if you think yourself to be a Christian, why is that? Why is it that you do not do the master's will? Well, it may be because you don't know what his will is. How do I know what his will is. If I knew it, I would do it. Well, there's where it begins. It starts with a desire to know God's will. And the person who claims to be a Christian, but does not care about Christ, his church, or his word, or his commands, is most of the time not a Christian. Not a Christian. This is something to think about. Not a Christian. As a person who is a Christian... I find myself a lot of times because I want, I want everybody, I was talking to someone on the phone about it last week, and I said, I want everybody who says they're a Christian, I hope they're all in heaven. Even if they don't believe exactly like I do. I, I hope they all really are going to heaven. And this person was saying, oh, I don't think that's true. I said, well, probably not. But still, as a person who's a Christian, and I know that hell is a real place, 
I know the heaven's a real place. I know sins are real. I know Jesus has actually made provision for salvation. I want everybody to go to heaven. And so what do we do? We lower the bar, right? Lower the bar. Have you ever played a game with a kid? You ever played basketball or some game with a little kid? Are there rules in basketball? So in basketball, when you're dribbling the ball, you can only touch the ball with how many hands? Only one hand. But you ever, you ever play with a basketball little kid and he's dribbling, dribbling, dribbling? No, he's, then he's doing this. Well, if two hands touch the ball in a dribble, what is that called? It's double dribble. It's traveling. It's a turnover. And so there you are. I say, say there's me playing basketball with Lacey and Leslie and Matt. You know, and, and, I, and, and they get the ball from me, and Leslie drives in for a layup, and she, she's going, ooh, 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 ooh. and I go, traveling! Well, that's not what you do with little kids, is it? When, when they're, they're coaching or learning something about sports, you, you'd say, no, you can't do that. But when you're playing with little kids, you just ignore the rules. You say, it's, ah, you say good job, good drive, you know? You, you, you adjust things for their benefit. And that's what we find ourselves as Christians sometimes doing, is we want other, everybody to be saved, so we, we, do, we adjust things. Sometimes we do it because we, that's the only way we can deal with it in psychologically. And I find myself doing the very same thing. But just because I lower the bar, does that mean that the bar is supposed to be in the right spot? It does not. Jesus sets the bar. Jesus sets the standard. He's the Lord. Not you or I. So the person who claims to be a Christian but has zero interest in Christ, in his church, in his word, in his commands, is most of the time not a Christian. Say, well, what about my friends and loved ones who say they're Christians, but, and I remember. Their Christianity, I remember when they used to have interest in God and church, but, you know, their life's changed. What about those persons? Can't they be extremely backslidden? I'm going to say yes, because I don't know how long people can stay backslidden. The London Confession says that that though true believers may fall into sin and backslide and commit grievous sins. We read Psalm 51 this morning about King David, a believer a born-again, regenerate person who committed adultery, had the husband killed, covered it up, all while being a Christian. So we're not talking about perfection, but there is something to think about. Now, when David was confronted for his sinfulness, what does does he do? Does he say, Nathan, to to the preacher, Nathan, does he say, Nathan, who do you think you are? Does he turn it back on Nathan? No, he does not. He shrivels up in spiritual agony because he feels so bad about it. He he already knew he was doing the wrong thing. The London Confession continues, and I'm just going from my memory now. What do they call it when you just generalize, summarize, uh, paraphrase? The London Confession says, Though Christians may fall into deep sins, after a while they recover themselves out of it. They want to get right with God. They get so sick of the guilt that they want to be restored. Now, Jesus and the will of Jesus for us in the New Testament 
And how people feel about doing the will of Jesus, is, in my opinion, is a good set of understandable guidelines. I'm saying this backwards. The way that we should live as Christians, there is a way that we should live. And a good set of guidelines for that is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse number 1. And it begins with Paul telling the Colossians, Set your affections, set your loves and desires, not on things on the earth, but on things above. Think differently about the way you live. And then Paul gives about 20 verses of instruction that basically covers every part of your life. I'm not going to go there and read it to you, but it's Colossians chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 1. Where if you want to know how you should live generally as a Christian, there it is. Now the will of God for Christians, it's not really that hard to find. It's not that hard to find. But let's go back to the, the third thing, the last thing. Next to the last thing. What about people who assert and claim that they are Christians, but they do not care at all about Christ? How do we think about that? Now, this is a very common thing. It's very common for, the, for there to be people who are professors of true faith, but not possessors of true faith. It's like somebody saying, I'm a great basketball player, but then they go down to the basketball court and they dribble with the old two-handed. That means they ain't that great. Possessors and professors, not the same things. If you take your Bible and turn to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, here's what you read. Jesus does the miracle at the marriage supper. He turns the water into wine, and because of the miracle, people believe in him. But here's what you read. That Jesus did not commit himself to all these people because he knew what was in man. Jesus knows all things he knew who really was a Christian and who really was not a Christian. He could see their hearts. So from the beginning, there have been people who are impressed by Jesus and they're attracted to Jesus, but nothing more. That's, they're just attracted to that. There's nothing deeper. In John chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus lost a whole bunch of followers. And Jesus' response to this, this, Jesus gives the teaching in John 6, and then the Bible says, because of what he said, a lot of people didn't go with him anymore. And Jesus' response to this in verses 66 to 71, by basically saying, guys, not everything is what it looks like. Not everything is what it looks like. These people who have seemed to be committed to me are walking with me. But he says, have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Talking about Judas Iscariot. And then Jesus, as he moves through the New Testament, in Mark chapter 4, he gives us this parable of the, the sower and the soils. The sower and the soils or the sower and the seed. He tells them this story in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. And then the disciples, they don't really understand it, which is the way it is about a lot of things sometimes. Like, I, don't, I heard what you said, but I'm not sure I really got it. So what Jesus does is he then interprets for the apostles so they can know what to expect. Now remember, Jesus can see the heart. He can see who really is a Christian, who really is not a Christian. But you and I can't. We can't do that. My dad's pastor, Brother Tom Pullen, who's in heaven now, uh, a great man, but he was an unusual man. 
because uh, at funerals, he was well known for giving pronouncements about whether or not a person was in heaven or not. And it didn't matter if that person never had any interest in God at all. <laughs> he would say, so-and-so is in heaven, the Lord told me. Now, that particular gift and the exercise of it isn't mentioned in the New Testament. <laughs> it was something that the pastor Pullen felt was his, was his ability to do, but who knows? Just because a pastor somewhere pronounces a person Christian doesn't make them a Christian. The new birth does that. So how do we, how do we, Jesus says he can see the hearts, and then he tells the apostles what they're going to have to deal with because they can't really know. They can't see the hearts. Jesus didn't tell Peter and Paul and James and John, I'm going to give you guys special power to discern the true nature of people. He says, no, what were you, I'm going to tell you is this is what it's going to look like. How do we know? How can we know? How do we tell? Jesus gives us this parable, the parable of the sower and the soils, okay? Basically, Jesus says in Mark chapter 4 that the gospel touches, touches people, but not everyone is actually converted. The gospel touches people, but not everyone is actually converted. I was at work one time in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I worked, worked with this older guy, and uh, we were talking about the Lord and about Christianity. And he said, I've been tempted to become a Christian lots of times. He said, there's only one guy who could ever really tempt me to trust in Christ. And he said, it's Adrian Rogers. He said, I used to live in Memphis. I used to go to Bellevue and hear Adrian Rogers preach. And he said, he's the only guy who ever got me to even think about walking down the aisle. So there was a guy who was attracted to Christianity. I mean, not a Christian, but going to church Sunday after Sunday. He was attracted to something there. The teaching, the way Adrian Rogers did it, he was interested in it. So people can be touched by the gospel, that they can, be, they can be impressed by the gospel and not actually be converted. And here's what Jesus, I'm just going to summarize these. In verse 15, Mark chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus talks about the soil that's hard, hard. And Jesus basically says this, that people hear the gospel, but Satan has hardened them so much that the gospel is just rejected. Like a tennis ball off a brick wall, no penetration. They're just hardened. You tell them the gospel and just, they just reject, reject, reject. You ever seen the guy who is a hardened sinner and his mother is talking to him, begging with him, pleading with him to not take drugs, to not drink alcohol, to not do crimes, to not... She's saying, please stop those things. And he's just like, mom, get off my back, back off. Hardened. Hardened. Some people hear the gospel, but they've just been hardened. Jesus says, Satan. He takes it from their mind. They're just hardened. And then verses 16 and 17, Jesus says that there are people who hear the gospel and they're stirred by it. They're stirred by the message of love. They're stirred by incredible mercy and grace. To them, it sounds so wonderful and they accept it on the merits of the beauty of it. But it doesn't last. That's what Jesus says there, that these people, they hear the gospel, they accept it, they believe it, but there's no depth. There's no depth. When it gets hard to be a Christian, they bail. They're just out. This is what happens a lot of times when you're doing personal evangelism with people. You're talking to people, you find you see this a lot at the jail. You're down at the jail, and there's a guy. When you're in jail, you know you're at the bottom. <laughs> you know you've hit the wall. 
And you talk to those guys at the jail, and they all know they're sinners, and they want, they want some help from heaven. And you tell them the gospel, and they're like, oh, yes, I want to be loved like that. But then when they get out of jail, there's no change taking place in their life. They haven't really been born again. They were attracted to the message, but then they reject it. When it gets hard, they bail. They quit. That's what Jesus says. That when they face persecution, they decide, you know, it's not worth it. So they quit. And then in verses 18 and 19, Jesus talks about there's this other soil. There's these seeds. There's seeds that are sown on ground and it they bears fruit. But after a while, the cares of this world choke it out and it becomes unfruitful. Other people are like the ones who hear and they're stirred by. They hear and they accept it. They embrace it. They say, yes, this gospel is wonderful. But over a longer period of time, they quit too. We could call these uh, five-year people, ten-year people. This is something that's worth thinking about. A person can, be, can make a profession of faith today and then live mostly like a Christian, go through Christian problems for years and then quit on the Lord. Quit on church. They just give this. Like, it's like they were never a Christian at all. These are, law, these are people who are described, in my opinion, it sounds like people who are saved as children so many times. They're saved. They make professions of faith when they're kids, maybe at five or eight years old. But then by the time they're 18 years old, they don't care about God, Jesus, the church, anything, but whatever any other lost person cares about. It doesn't last. This is what Jesus says. He says to the apostles, he says, this is what it's going to be like. You're going to tell the gospel to everybody. Some people are going to give, are going to give you the finger and, move, and, and just move on. Some people are going to go, you know what? I want that. But they're not going to last. And then some people are going to say, you know, I want that, and I'm going to walk in it, and they'll walk in it for a while, but then they bail. Four groups of people, Jesus describes. But then there's a, then there's a last group. And he says, this, these are the people who believe because they've been born again. He says, the, there's good ground. They receive the gospel message, and they progress. They mature, they blossom, and they bless. They become real Christians. And you've seen that in people. And I know a lot of you guys have been Christians a long time. You've seen people who are mature, blossoming, and blessing. You've seen them get crossways with God. But what happens when a real Christian gets crossways with God? They stay crossways with God. They, try, they, they want to get right. This, this is what Jesus says. This is lordship. I'm simply trying to say to you this morning is that the people who reflect in their life as a general sentiment and flavor that Jesus is Lord, that's the normal expectation of a Christian. It's normal to expect Christians to be like Christians. A life that says Jesus is Lord of my life, that's the natural consequence or outcome of a person who has been born again born again 
being born again, it means a supernatural thing has, taken, has happened to you. You've been changed from the inside. God has done something in your heart. He's given you a new heart, a new mind, new thinking. You don't think about life the way you used to think about it. A bomb has gone off inside of you. An atomic bomb has taken place. And the radiation has affected every part of your internal being. God is at work in you. Born again. So the question is, are you born again? If you are born again, man, you're happy about it. (laughs) Even, Even though it ain't easy, you're happy to be a Christian. But what if you want to be a Christian? What if you're not sure that you're a Christian? Well, if you're burdened with your sinfulness. This is where it begins. Burdened. If you've come to know your shortcomings, your sinfulness, not your sinfulness in front of me, a pastor, not your sinfulness in front of your mom or dad or teacher at school or your boss, but if you're burdened with your sinfulness before God, David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. If you recognize that and you want to be free from it, I want you to listen to what Jesus says. If you have your Bible... Let's turn to this passage instead of, I'll just, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. To the burdened soul, Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying is, come to me with your burden. And get in the yoke with me because he is taking the burden over. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He died to take those sins away from you. And when you put your faith and trust in him, the burden of those sins is taken away. The guilt is taken away. You're washed as white as snow. Clean. Peace with God and salvation are gotten through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. It's not gotten. Peace with God is not achieved by Good works or by reformation or by doing better is gotten by trusting in Jesus. And you trust in Jesus because the Holy Spirit has done a work inside of you and you'll never be the same. You're never going to be perfect. We all know that. (laughs) But there's this ongoing work of Him in you. It's like it's like you're a car, right? Like you're a car. Cadillac. You're a car. And you had a driver who used to drive you around named the devil. And he drove you like crazy. Never changed your oil. Never rotated your tires. He, he took you on two wheels around the corners. Dragged raced you down dirt roads. Wrecked you and crashed you and backed into dumpsters. I mean, he made a, a mess out of you. And then Jesus bought you. <laughs> bought you off the junkyard, you know. And he took you back to his shop and gave you a frame-off restoration. New wires, new wheels, new fenders, new paint, new interior. Charged up your air conditioning. And then when he drove you, he drove you like he cared about you. He took care of you. It's Jesus, he, he, he takes over. 
And he cares for you all the way through the end. All the way through the end. <laughs> my, my grandpa in Arizona, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he, he's, a, he's a strange cat. He had a, a 1939 Cadillac limousine that he owned. And uh, he showed it to us. It wasn't that great looking car. It, looked, it, was all, it, was, it was just not that great. But he loved it. He loved it. And somebody would come around sometimes and say, hey, sell me that car. And he said, no way, I'm not selling it. That's my Cadillac. Because he had an effect. Even though it, was, it seemed to be useless to others, he said, no, I, I have use for it. Jesus comes and takes you, a sinner, makes you his very own. He doesn't leave you like you were. He takes, he says, I'm the Lord of your life. The Lord of your life. I'm the master and I'll take care of you. You do what I say, it'll be all right. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing a hymn, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for your word.